to welcome Sam Savuri, the Chief Economist of the Tosca Fund, uh, onto our podcast, Conversations With. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. And so Sam and I have two things in common. One, we're both long-suffering Arsenal fans, although slightly less suffering this season, I feel. Um, but we can talk a bit about that. Um, and also, uh, we are both trying to predict what investments are going to look like in the future. So those two topics, I think, are probably going to cover most of what we're going to talk about today. But maybe just briefly, if you wouldn't mind, Sam, just potted history of how you uh, got into the job that you're in and why you support Arsenal. Well, I, I support Arsenal because I grew up in North London, just in, on the doorstep of Highbury. Uh, I went to Holloway School, Chaffner Park School. You can't, you can't get much closer to Arsenal than going to Holloway School. Uh, I was lucky enough I went to university. I was even more lucky that I found economics. I enjoyed it so much I wanted to teach it or lecture it. And one day I was giving a lecture and one of the, client, one of the students asked me where I'd applied what I was lecturing. And I hadn't applied it. So in 1991 I opted to spend a few years in what we now know what we know as a city and have never left. That's 31, 32 years ago. Um, and I've spent the last 15 years at Tosca Fund, uh, having spent the first 14, 15 years in the investment banks. So it's a big difference between investment banks where you pontificate but don't invest and an asset management firm where it's not only a case of applying what you're doing but with often your own money, or invariably your own money. And we are big in real estate in the UK. Um, anyone who's familiar with Regis or RWG knows that we have a significant shareholding. We own many hundreds of millions of pounds of, of, of properties across the UK. We own Southend Airport. Congratulations. Um, which we bought before uh, lockdown, and we still think it's a very good asset. So it's, it's, this is actually... Really? I, I've got skin, skin in the game. Yeah, so well... That's what we like on this podcast, real people, real, real investments. Um, obviously, on everybody's mind, the two things are, should Arsenal have won the title? Um, and, you know, where's the economy going? Um, in some ways, for me, uh, the two things are linked, because obviously, uh, at the beginning of the season, you know, had you said we'd come second, I'd have snapped your hand off. But funnily enough, when that's the thing about predictions and hope, right, is that you change the goalposts as you move along. Um, so considering uh, that the economy was meant to go in recession and didn't, which actually is something that uh, I believe you, uh, you, you predicted, um, what, is, what does the future hold for both club and country? Well, for club, as you say, it's about uh, expectation management. And, yeah. uh, finishing second to a club that spends much more money uh, isn't a great um, embarrassment, um, having been so close to winning it. It's disappointing uh, second season running that we've had a, we've we've tailed off. But the important thing is that you mentioned the season, and in May of 2022, the Bank of England, in its uh, estimation, said that we'd have the longest, deepest recession in modern time. And uh, what I said at the time was, recessions don't simply materialise out of nowhere. They have to be triggered by something, and it's either a collapse in the labour market, the property markets either resi or commercial, or a big crisis in the what we know is sort of financial sector, so mm -hmm. banks, insurance, pension funds. And let's be honest, there was nothing wrong with the labour market last year. In fact, it's been flying. 
vacancies have never been higher. Property market, you've never had a time when more Britons have actually owned their homes outright or had mortgages that have been uh, fixed rate. And banks have never been better capitalised. And yet last year, if, if you think about the UK last year, nothing that could have gone wrong, or could have, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. You had, um, you had the uh, unlocking of the economy, which created its own inflation. You had the war in Ukraine, which created inflation. You had a political crisis that uh, seemed to last forever. You had the Bank of England projecting that would have a recession, and also, uh, because it was late to raise interest rates, almost fueling recession fears, because it was pushing rates up at a steepness that really, had it begun earlier, wouldn't have been necessary. And you had strikes, as workers in sectors that weren't getting pay rises they wanted were causing disruptions. So really, it's a confluence of everything that could have gone wrong. Um, and to repeat, we had a political crisis. And yet, against that backdrop, you didn't have recession. So the day we're recording this, the IMF have effectively followed the Bank of England and accepted they were wrong. But they were always going to be wrong. Now, as to why they were wrong, the answer is simple. You know, we, we impute that these institutions have experts in them. And the Bank of England in the IMF is like the arsenal. Okay, it may be the same uh, football pitch, same uh, badge on the, on the jersey, the same everything, the same colours, but it's the personnel that matters. And the quite simple truth is, and I, I, I don't mind being quoted on this because I've been quoted enough times. Well, is this, the, we are recording it. Yes. So you will be quoted on it. No, this is nothing, this is, I don't want to get it out, in fact. Yeah. I want to keep it in, please. Is that, is that the, this governor isn't particularly good. Um, he was lucky that when he became, became governor, he had a very good chief economist, Andy Haldane. But Andy Haldane, who uh, made some very clear warnings about inflation, when we were about to be unlocked. And he was shouted down effectively and left. So we've now got a bad governor and a bad chief economist. The governor before, Mark Carney, wasn't particularly good either. Here's the simple truth, and I, I, I've got to uh, make this point. Interest rates of 0.5 were unhealthy. Between 35 and 4.5% is where this, this country needs rates to be. And anyone bemoaning rates going to 4.5 and possibly 4.75, maybe even 5%, should bear in mind that, that they will quickly move down to a rate of between 35 and 4.5%, which is what banks enjoy because they uh, earn interest. Uh, those youngsters who are now complaining about not having enough money for a mortgage had interest rates gone up when they should have gone up, and this may uh, sound surprising. UK base rates should have been rising in 2013. So you, you can't get youngsters saving for a, for a, for a house if they can't see the point of putting money in a bank, if it's not yielding anything. So interest rates perform a function, and the function they perform is valuable, whether it's paying banks' interest so they can give it out as dividends to pension funds and insurance companies that pay us out, or encourage saving. Also, inflation. Inflation will move down sharply, but it will never get back to the range of 1% to 3%, because... The demands we put up upon us in terms of ESG and CSR, all these sort of three-letter acronyms. We, 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 the, the fact that we don't want fast fashion anymore, we don't want to have carbon footprints, we don't want to have factories in parts of the world that don't treat their workers very well, that's inflationary. So the inflation rate in the UK going forward won't be between 1% and 3%. It'll be between 3 and 5%. 
and it shouldn't be something we should be alarmed about. Okay, so base rate between three and a half and four and a half percent, inflation between three and five percent. Get used to it. Absolutely, and it's, it's interesting because you're almost advocating. Uh, I mean, the past ten years have been have been you, know, you get drunk on cheap money, uh, easy access to credit and capital, um, and so things are you know things are easy. But it's almost like the introduction of shall we say it financial fair play rules that might you know re-level the playing field. Which we, we wish Man City would follow, but they don't. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, um, we are obviously we're subject to a full investigation, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's a bribery. You, you do have to, in reality. I mean, it, it's, it's take your medicine time, right? Yeah, um, we have managed to keep inflation unnaturally low, interest rates extremely unnaturally low. Yeah, um, and that's actually going to come back now and bite us. Or I wouldn't go. That's that's a bit too strong. The okay. the the idea that it's, that we've got a basically there's a sort of a um, a reckoning is somewhat dramatic. The to repeat in two in two thousand eight the economy needed dramatic remedial help. Yeah. Putting rates at 0.5 saved us, and it was important that they stayed there for two oh nine two ten two eleven. Possibly T twelve, but by two thirteen they weren't necessary anymore, and they were they were causing more trouble than they were delivering uh, pleasure from. They were dis, they were dis, discouraging saving. They're also, funny enough, uh, on the flip side, fourteen years. It's fourteen years that we had zero interest rates, and by zero I'm talking about between point one and point seven five. It meant that in that fourteen year period, there were twenty million homes in England that are in the private sector. Twenty million homes in England. 10 million of them do not have a mortgage. That's unprecedented. And so the, the transmission from a rising base rate to making us poorer is broken in some ways by the fact that 10 million homes don't have a mortgage. Uh, lest we forget, when COVID struck, uh, the West, and it wasn't simply the UK, but the US and Europe, we wanted to basically cushion our households from being locked down. So we committed to paying furlough and giving businesses bounce-back loans. Now, in total, not my numbers, and by the way, the 10 million homes that are unmortgaged, they're not my numbers, they're Bank of England numbers. In total, the Bank of England estimates that through COVID, 12 to 14 months, in aggregate, UK homes amassed in voluntary savings, this is a drum roll moment, £300 billion. Wow. Unprecedented. You know, we're, talking, we're talking about a quantum of money that... It's, even to an economist, is mind-boggling. And what you shouldn't have done during lockdown is both give money through what is known as a fiscal channel, here's, a, here's some money, and also cut interest rates. We couldn't spend. And so it's a yin and yang. They should, we should have had a much better management of the economy. Because we didn't, uh, Andy Haldane said we need basically to uh, prepare for a huge uh, unlocking bonanza of spending. And because... Lockdown caused supply disruptions. And the people who used to work in hotels and airports had gone to work somewhere else. So when we were unlocked, the things we wanted to buy were in short supply. So we had lots of money. Again, not my observation, the Bank of England's. And insufficient things to buy on. That's what inflation is the consequence of. The reason that we're not buying as much food from grocery stores isn't because the cost of food is going up sharply and we're starving ourselves is because 
look around you. We've begun to embrace the delivery of restaurant quality food to our doors. And that's food that's not being bought from supermarkets. So it appears optically that Sainsbury and Tesco and Asda are not selling so much food because we're all impoverished. I'm not being insensitive to the, the reality. It's simply that the, the optics are wrong. What is going on in Europe? It's very unpleasant. Whether it's Poland or Hungary, uh, there are issues that are going to materialise quite soon. Particularly Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, he is in the European Union, he has a central bank that has interest rates. We're, we're alarmed by interest rates in the UK at 4.5%. And to repeat, 4.5% is the upper ceiling of the, what we're going to see going forward. In Hungary, they're 13%, one three, And Viktor Orban wants them to go down. The Meanwhile, the ECB, as much as I can malign the Bank of England, the ECB, which is effectively the Eurozone's central bank, they're, they're, they're also late in raising interest rates. And they're now, catch, they're, they're now chasing their tail, which means if you're Hungary or Poland or Romania or the Czech Republic, you've got to follow what the ECB does, and they won't. What's the point? The point is that for the UK, what it means essentially is that the, the 500,000 Europeans who, who haven't come back to the UK after COVID, and again, no one knows for sure because these numbers are up in the air, but it's estimated that between 1 and 1.2 million Europeans who have settlement sets in the UK when their uh, jobs were soft-closed, they left and went back home. Why stay in the UK paying rent when you can go home and almost certainly take furlough with you? Half of them haven't come back. And as the problems in Europe intensify and worsen, they'll come back. Because two things you can say about the UK. One is that the labour market is on fire. And if you want to know the, the most generously yielding asset in the UK this year will be one's labour. Because by the end of the year, wage inflation will be comfortably uh, close to 10%. It could be 95 it could be 85 but it'd be on the, on the upper side of 5%. And if you're seeing UK wage inflation picking up and the pound picking up after seven, eight years of being on its back... That's an encouragement to come back to the UK, particularly if there's a push of, uh, of discomfort where you are. So jobs get filled that currently are vacant. That then eases inflation that we're seeing. So there's a very healthy corrective mechanism. Full disclosure, um, it's important I make this, this, this point. I, I, when I was asked about Brexit in 2016, I did some work on it, a lot of work on it, and my conclusion was the UK in the long term was better off outside the European Union. And lest we forget, the moment Brexit happened, so did COVID. So anyone telling you that the flow of goods and people has been hurt by Brexit, as an econometrician, I'll say you can't separate what the effect of Brexit was from COVID. In, so far as inflation is concerned, a lot, a lot of a lot of commentary has said all the inflation we're seeing is because of Brexit. Well, you go well, how about Ukraine and COVID? So these, these are. You're conflating... There are three things, COVID, Brexit and Ukraine. And we'll never be able to figure out how to unstitch all three. Let's look forward a bit, because obviously everybody loves a bit of crystal ball gazing. What should Britain be doing with this news? You know, in, a, in an environment where the pound's going to improve, Labour's coming back, you know, what, what, as an investor, as an investor out there, you know, where should I be 
putting my money? Is it in a holding midfielder? Is it in a you know, central defender? Where, where do we need to strengthen our investment? We call it Kane, right? Not after Harry, I uh, hasten to add. C- C-A-N-E, Central Northern England. Okay. Incredibly rich in all the industries that are going to grow. Uh, Central Northern England is wonderfully positioned for logistics, which has had a huge spurt because of COVID, and that spurt won't reverse. So if you want to have a warehouse or a network of warehouses, you don't have them. There's no slight on Scotland or Wales or the South West or even London. You have them in the part of, of the country which, is, which gives you 360 degrees radio connectivity, and that's Central Northern England. There's going to, because of COVID and Ukraine and because of uh, supply security issues and because of ESG and CSR, the UK, having for decades seen manufacturing decline, will have a manufacturing renaissance, particularly in uh, green energy, manufacturing and car making. And again, car making networks tend to be concentrated in the centre of England. Scotland and Wales and London don't have car making plants. Thirdly, you've got education. The fastest growing industry in the UK over recent years has been universities, which are incredibly real estate intensive and labour intensive. So, so uh, what that means is that if you've got a, a pound to invest in the UK and you've got an option of every, every sort of piece of space, I'm not dismissing Scotland and Wales and London, but I'm saying that if you want to sweat your wealth, central and northern England. The powers are shifting, aren't they? I mean, they have been for a number of years um, in terms of you know, Russia, China, what's going on in, in, in emerging economies. Um, I suppose the biggest, uh, the bogeyman on the horizon this week is, is, of course, artificial intelligence. Now, how do you see that potentially impacting jobs and lives and people? And One thing about industrialization is it doesn't kill jobs. And that's been proven because we've been through different episodes of industrialization. It's just changing the nature of jobs. Because if you're writing AI code, because it doesn't write itself, yeah. then you're doing quite well out of this. And also, the thing about AI is that it's not difficult to, be, to, to game it. Someone who can write a, a coding to create artificial intelligence knows how to basically corrupt it. So if AI is picking up signals that then create behavioural shifts you can then create false flares. If you are going to use AI to make your investment decisions, be prepared to lose your money. Because That's, someone will gain it. But it's fashionable. It is fashionable, Bob. And I think that we're seeing the early signs of what you're talking about in terms like of things like the... Uh, things we've not seen before, like like the run on Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, right? The, these I things... We're conflating things here. Those, those were... Uh, Christmas was a was a, a, a specific event in Switzerland. Yeah. The, the the regional banks in the US have got sort of localized issues. I'm not saying they're, cont- they're contained, but to assume that what's happening in the US will basically contaminate the UK is where I take issue. The, in, in in a way, in in, t- in 2008, we had three car crashes happening at the same time. The subprime in the US, in the US, the former building societies in the UK, all crashing. And then the peripheral or pig economies in, in the Eurozone have been over-borrowed and been over-generous. And they happened at the same time. And we assumed that they were coincident because they were, there was a causality, common causality. They weren't. 
It was just pure coincidence. No common causality. This time around, what's happening in the US should not be read through to the UK. I suppose the point I was making is possibly slightly different in terms of the, the pace at which the run on the bank happens today yeah, is, is because of our communications networks, because of, you talk about false flags, I'm not necessarily saying there was a false flag involved in, in, in Silicon Valley, but what it does show is that actually the pace of that, that, that contagion yeah, could happen a lot quicker. Well, I, I, yeah. I'd say that if you, if you look at the history of uh, bank runs, their speed hasn't accelerated because the word of mouth is actually quite quick and it's ge geometric. And bank runs have been happening since time immemorial because banking, let's be honest, banking is a fiction. You heard it here first. No, no yes. it's, it's a, it's a but banking is leverage. Uh, banks have reserve requirement ratios which say that for every, every pound of deposit you have, you can lend out 10 pounds. So if everyone brought their money back, it couldn't happen. So banks rely upon confidence. The good news is that the, regulatory, the regulation of banks in the UK, so whatever I say about the Bank of England, about its forecasting and its internet policy, it's a fa it has been a fantastic regulator of banks for a dozen years in this country. It, de it has demanded that our banks have cash buffers. It has demanded that our banks uh, do stress testing on mortgages. It has demanded so much from our banks that means that we're not in the same sort of uh, banking position that we were in the 2000s when you had ridiculous sort of overlending by Northern Rock, Bradford and Bingley, Alliance and Leicester, Halifax, Bank of Scotland. I could go on. Yes. So, different kettle of pilchards today. And yet, all over here is, oh, this reminds me of the 08 crisis, or the 79 crisis, or the 89 housing crisis. They're all very different, and there's, there's, not a germ, there's not a germ similar today in the economy that resembles the 79, 89, or 08. Finish on a high, so you know, and finish where we started, which is so. So, can we do it? Can we win the league next season? No, no, because the, we've had the backdrop where Chelsea have been rubbish, United have been rubbish, Liverpool have been double rubbish. Uh, Spurs have it's been it's regular, normal yeah, Spurs, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, and City aren't going to get weaker, right? So, so if we if we have an expectation next season, it should be to be top four. Which is exactly the expression we were hoping for this season. Because Brighton are on the march. Look, again, uh, I'm far more confident on forecasting economics than the Arsenal. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah, that's true. Although, I've got to say that actually, I mean, the other thing that concerns me, it, it's sort of economic, is that when you start fighting on more than one front, yeah, so, you know, Champions League, yeah. um, even if you discount the, the, the League Cup... Um, yeah, that, that starts to stretch any team. Well, I, so if I can be serious for a second, Absolutely. to close off, and yeah. I'm, I'm actually being serious in the context of the UK economy yep. and the country. Look at the, the nations that have a surfeit of wealth, and there are quite many of them. Mm. So uh, whether it's the, the countries that have energy wealth in the emerging world or the likes of Canada and Australia that have, or Norway that are... Uh, resource-rich, but also developed. Look where, where they put their, their surplus, surplus wealth. The UK is a very high-ranking nation. Often in Europe, it's the highest-ranking nation. If you're the Australian Supervision Fund or the Canadian, the Ontario Pension Fund, Nordica Bank, Qataris, Singaporeans, they 
look to put their money in the UK. And we've seen we've seen the way that football clubs have been contested by new wealth economies. And they and football clubs are real estate. They, they're real estate with a, with a branding, and they're regional. Uh, look at Newcastle. Look at City. Okay, look at look at the the bun fight to to over Chelsea and over United. So it's a manifestation of the fact that this country that is invariably maligned as being unwanted in the world, but if it's unwanted, tell that to the the buyers of football clubs and the buyers of real estate. A football club is real estate. Look, Chelsea was bought as a real estate play, like it or not. United is a real estate play. It's got IP as well. Global branding. So I, I, I don't want to sort of be too serious, but the thing is that that's the reality of the UK: is that it's seen as an economy that is a lot weaker than it actually is, and less of a draw on global capital than it actually is. And, and the thing about interest rates in the UK: no one can, the real estate in the UK won't be bought by domestic capital. It'll be bought by long-term international capital: Saudis, Norwegians. Yeah, but no one was my Spurs. <laughs> and with that, I would like to thank Sam for his time today. It's been really interesting talking to you as always, and I look forward to many more years of almost climbing the mountain of the Premier League six seats for you. So, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. <laughs>